tonight um, I'm going to speak about the sixth of the seven factors. And we've talked about and explored the previous five of sati, which is awareness, and um, <clears throat> dharma-vichaya, investigation, virya, energy, piti, which is joy, and then pasadi, which is rapture or calm or serenity. And tonight we'll talk about samadhi, which is a factor I like very much, appreciate very much, and enjoy the practice of samadhi. Um, and the word samadhi is generally translated as concentration. But I'll give you a few other uh, ways to understand it, concentration being a key. But also it means union or unification. Or also sometimes samadhi is translated as absorption or immersion, like we're being immersed in something. And it's also uh, sometimes um, from, the, from the Sanskrit to the Pali translated as jhana, which is, uh, has its own connotation similar to absorption. And the word that we generally use, it is common in English, and you all have some idea of, is concentration. Concentration. Concentric. Concentric. With centering. And the original word always meant to point or to puncture, so it had a sharpness to it when it came from the Greek and the Latin, when they were talking about with centering. And the word center, um, any word with the word centra, C-E-N-T-R in it, means the point around which a circle is drawn. The point around which a circle is drawn. And that's a really important and, I believe, helpful and beautiful reference to what samadhi is about. It's about the point around which a circle is drawn, or the centering of ourselves and our experience so that all of it can be known by this being centered. Or we could also use the word for concentration grounded in that way when we're centered in this way. And we become the point, or I could say it this way, our consciousness becomes the point around which the circle of all of reality is drawn and known. And there's a kind of, um, there's different kinds of samadhi, which I'll say right now, which two main kinds in the Theravada tradition that are pointed at which is um, the first, which is a general kind of samadhi, which is to be with the breath, to be with one 
experience and stay with one experience. And in the Theravada, it's referred to as a kind of one-pointed meditation practice. And that's very taught many different ways. Can be with the breath, could be with sounds, could be with uh, 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 meta phrases. Can be used. Can there are many different um, objects of meditation, but it's the same principle. We're going to focus everything. We're going to center around this point, and the simplest one, the one we use often, is the breath. Just being with the breath, and then the second kind of samadhi that's taught and that's very important it's called kinika samadhi and it 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 means it's the samadhi of being present with each moment even though it's not the same object meaning it can be a sound a sight a taste a touch but there's samadhi in the knowing of it and awareness of it and so in and the first kind of samadhi which I'm actually forgetting the Pali word for the first kind except samadhi samadhi and um, and that that is the basis for the kinika samadhi and uh, um, and so we're often encouraged to develop this one-pointed samadhi and then open the awareness with that same presence that same centeredness that same knowing and and um, yeah, so that we become the point around which the circle of all of our experience is drawn and known. <clears throat> um, and here's a few other ways concentration is talked about. Um, to, to bring or draw to a common center, to collect one's faculties and give them a single direction or purpose and it's the same principle the move towards the center um, to come together into one place is to concentrate or to agree come into and be in harmony and accord with one experience is also to concentrate and to bring together in closer union, to condense, connotating a resultant effect of an increased intensity and power. And it's, um, even though it's in the um, stabilizing set of factors, of the seven factors, it's a very potent practice, samadhi. And it's in a lot of the different lists that the Buddha used to teach people to wake up. And so take a moment and reflect of how do you get centered here in your meditation? How do you get concentrated? Right? Con means with, trade is centrated, means centered. How do you get with center in your own meditation? What supports your centeredness in your practice? What kind of instructions help you?
or support you. Meaning what skillful means supports and develops your experience of being centered, present, even one-pointed with your experience. And different teachers will use different instructions to help guide and support us as we practice. And some of the instructions that I use and also that I like, um, meaning I use as a teacher teaching, but I also use as a student teaching myself or guiding myself when I'm practicing. So I've worked a lot with mindfulness of breathing, very simple practice just with the one object. And so I want to rest my attention with the breathing. Rest my attention with the breathing. Or sometimes I feel it as floating on the sensations of breath. Letting my attention, my consciousness, float on the sensations of the breath so that I feel or sense or know quite directly the somatic kinesthetic experience of an in-breath and then an out-breath. And for me, it's actually a very sensual experience in that way. It's not an abstract experience. It's not from a distance. I'm trying to know the breath in its immediacy. I want to get intimate with the breathing. I want to feel it in that way. And of course, it's helpful, and you can, of course, play with or try any of these, even while we're, while I'm talking or when you're sitting. Um, uh, some teachers like to, to encourage a certain attitude of interest in the breath itself. And one of my teachers who we've mentioned, uh, Venerable Analyo, he really likes this, okay, this could be your last breath. Be mindful of this breath and know that it actually could be your last breath. And it's, this is true for each breath. And so he's not pointing us at something totally abstract, but it's something we don't usually pay attention to, that this could be our last breath. And so it brings a little more interest if we think this really could be the last breath. I mean, you might as well hang out with it if it's the last one. And of course, it's similar if you go in the other direction because the breath that you're about to breathe is the first breath right now. You've had a lot of them, but this is the fresh breath, the real breath, the breath that's actually alive right now. So it's like taking the first breath. And like I said, I really appreciate the sensation, sensory, texture, direct contact knowing of the sensations of breath itself. And what I've found is very beautiful as one starts to settle and 
calm and get a little more tranquil, that one can get very, very intimate with this very ordinary experience of being alive, characterized by our life's breath. And that intimacy knows no limit. And I I just said something really good. (laughs) Really, no, no, really. Because it's true. Because, I mean, it has no limit how close we can get to the breath. And we may have a lot of ideas about what we've experienced before, which we all do, but don't let your ideas obscure the potential for this, really, what I'm calling an infinite intimacy with a moment of aliveness, of breathing. And it's quite, it can be, and I've experienced it as very pleasurable when that kind of sensual aliveness and connection is present. And so another way it's instructed at times or that I feel it at times is what happens if I let myself become absorbed in the breath itself? What happens if I let my consciousness get absorbed in one breath or a half a breath, meaning an in-breath or an out-breath? And then the encouragement is to sustain that kind of contact and see what happens if I can do it for a few minutes or 10 minutes or half an hour or an hour or two hours because it keeps drawing me closer the longer I stay in contact. Do you need some help? Is it okay, the spider? Are you concerned about it? Okay, you could do. Yeah. I mean, I I'm I feel pretty comfortable with the spider personally, but if you really want to, you could. Just, you know, go quietly, and I'm going to keep talking, but you could do that. But, yeah, I mean, that's what I said. You, but, okay. Yeah, uh, I think you want plastic usually, but okay. You know, we're having an adventure. Yeah. Oh, there he is. Or she. Take your time. Um, here, here's something that'll work a little better. The spider gets scared when you put the paper on there. It's not sure what the paper is. Yeah. Here you go. 
The spider gets really concentrated when it's getting picked up and it doesn't know what's going on. That's no, true. It, it's, it's often true. Sometimes when we don't know what's going on, we really get right there with the experience. I don't know if you've ever had that. Sometimes in accidents that can happen where you're right there with the accident happening and it's, you know, it's interesting how consciousness can work that way. So back to kind of, you know, meditation concentration. Uh, let yourself become absorbed in the breath or Sometimes it's encouraged, and I feel this, I feel my love for the breath. And it's part of the love for being alive that we've been pointing at a little, the, the appreciation of our aliveness and the life's breath that keeps us going. And I think it's one of the first things that really ends when we die, is we stop breathing. You know, and everything else slowly comes to a halt. But the breath is the main characteristic of death. You know, like when somebody stopped breathing, that's it. And so it's such an amazing part of our life that is ordinary and extraordinary at the same time that we are breathing. So one of the ways when I'm trying to encourage the samadhi and support the samadhi and even make the samadhi happen, I'm going to include that version of practice, which is not just receptive but active, um, is I think about what is it, what's it like to give myself to the breath, to the breathing, and to the practice of being aware of it. And I really I give myself. It's a very... Um, I don't even know what it is, but I and I don't know why, but that really works for me. Just giving myself to the breathing and the breath, and this is all I'm going to do fully. And it's related a little bit to what Pam was saying um, about the wholeheartedness that she was pointing at, and that's how I think about practice, and especially samadhi practice. It's wholehearted practice. We give ourselves fully and see what happens as the samadhi begins to establish itself and then deepen and then really flower because it can flower samadhi practice. And underneath all of all of my practice is is not this isn't the only intention but it's a really key intention that I have that supports my samadhi is I'm not just doing it for myself. I am doing it for myself, but I'm not just doing it solely for myself. Part of my intention when I practice and when I sit here at every sitting is may this be for the benefit of all beings. And that, you know, something I learned a long time ago sounded good sounded very cool, okay, I'll say that, think that. But over time, that's actually become part of my living reality of that is just part of practice. Because, I mean, good, good to do it for me, but I'm included in the all beings. 
it's, it's a win-win that way. No, I, I, I mean it sincerely because sometimes we, we think a little more narrow and thinking a little, feeling a little broader, being centered in a way. Remember, it's the point around which the circle is drawn. And so when I practice in the, that way, it's quite a big circle that's drawn. And yeah, and it's in the intention is for the good of all. And it's also a way that practice, samadhi, can unify our life, right? It's not just in the meditation, but it unifies our whole life when we practice in that way. And so there's a big circle in that samadhi of the center of our practice. That, that circle includes everyone and everything. And all, really, all of reality. And it's a beautiful way to, I feel, live my life. I mean, I'm, I, I can't imagine living life any other way at this point. And it doesn't mean, I want to be clear, it doesn't mean I'm thinking every moment about what I need to do for everybody else. That's not how it works. But it means it's part of my reality and it's part of what I've learned from Buddhism and what starts to actualize itself. It's not really that I have to do it so much. And here, I'll tell you something. I hadn't thought about this, but it's... Uh, uh, oh, I like what I'm going to add on now. <laughs> it's, um, it's about... Um, I learned something really a lot, and I believe Pam shares this with me, um, uh, about Buddhism in a diff- very different way last year when I went to Bhutan. We went to Bhutan and we were in Bhutan for a while and it was, and Bhutan's a Buddhist country, right? I don't know if everybody knows that. It's the only Buddhist country in the world. There are many countries that have Buddhism as the main religion, but Bhutan, as far as I know, is the only Buddhist country with a Buddhist government with Buddhist principles woven into their government and their laws and their, how they understand life. And here's the, for example, that many people know, they don't have a gross national product. What they have and what they talk about and what's part of their life is gross national happiness, right? Now, that's a different world than the world I grew up in, right? And I grew up in Detroit, and I actually have a great love for Detroit, but that wasn't exactly the, you know, or or I moved to New York, I love New York. That's not New York or Detroit, you know. I mean, you know, you take care of yourself. That's the basic idea. And um, And so gross national happiness... Which, you know, we'd heard about it, and again, sounds good, like, really cool. But then to see how people live it, and that it's a living part of their life. It's not an abstract law out there, like, oh, you, you read the, the Bhutanese Street Journal to see where the, where the gross national happiness is at on the Richter scale or something. Um, y- you know, it's talked about... In, in, it, was, it was included in what we were doing each day. And does it, does it support the collective happiness or not? 
And that means something there. And that's very different than what I've seen even in Buddhism here, which is, again, I've been part of the import of Buddhism in Western cultures that have imported it. I'm not part of the native peoples who brought Buddhism over when they moved here from Asia. Um, and so it may be different, but I've just been, I was so surprised by the, they didn't talk about practicing Buddhism in Bhutan. They just lived it. And that was really different. That really taught me something. They weren't saying, "Oh yeah, we practice in this way," and we and they if you ta- if you if you pushed them on it, they would say some of that. But that wasn't. They they lived it. It was a living practice that wasn't a practice. It was their life, and that was very illuminating and very, you know. I mean, again, I felt like. A, baby Buddhist who was just learning from people who knew something I didn't know about, really. Not in that way. Hmm. And so the concentration was actually everywhere. Really, I I feel. It was so interesting because and, and they would they were kind of wild too, which I like. I like wild. And they... Uh, you know, sometimes we'd be somewhere and the the guides who we're with, and you, you have to be with a guide in Bhutan because they're very protective of their culture, which I totally respect. And so they don't just want it to be overrun with tourism. And so you come and you can't just go anywhere or do anything. You can, you know, you can arrange what you're doing, but it's guided. And so the guides sometimes they say, well, we're going to hike here and we're going to go by here and you wanted to see this cave of this very famous lama, so we're going to go there and, we're, and then there's, we're going to have a picnic. And we're like, great, a picnic. And then we would get there. <laughs> and it was, I mean, this was a feast. And we couldn't figure out even how they got all this stuff where we were because we'd done a big hike, you know, out in what was nowhere to us, and uh, anyhow, it was it was very illuminating to be in a culture that was uh, Buddhist in that way, and uh, and again, the samadhi wasn't like something they were thinking about; they just did it. Yeah, they just did it, and so they were one. That's what I want to say. They were one with what they were doing. They were unified with what was happening. There wasn't a lot of extra or add-on. So I'll say a little more about concentration and jhana, right? Which is um, a certain level of what's called concentration that happens in practice or that can happen. This is from Bhante Gunaratna, who said, Jhana is closely connected with samadhi, rendered as concentration. The word samadhi samadhi is almost interchangeable with samatha, which is serenity. And so you hear the closeness between tranquility and concentration in in, uh, this understanding. And um, in the suttas, samadhi is defined as mental one-pointedness. 
And that's a similar understanding of John. It's this one-pointedness that's unified, that one becomes absorbed in the experience. And the Buddha was very keen on this. I'll give you a little from the Majjhima Nikaya. He said, jhana is called the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of enlightenment. And I say this kind of pleasure, this that I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued and that it should be developed and that it should be cultivated and that it should not be feared, this kind of pleasure in Buddhism. And it's the pleasure of being one with our experience, the pleasure of being fully here with what's happening. And here, this is from... um, a Shambhala tradition. And they say, Samadhi is the non-dualistic state of consciousness in which the consciousness of the experiencing subject becomes one with the experienced object and thus is only experiential content. Um, I'll read it again. Samadhi is a non-dualistic state of consciousness in which the consciousness of the experiencing subject becomes one with the experienced object, thus is only experiential content. Experiential content. This state of consciousness is often referred to as one-pointedness of mind. This expression, uh, however, is misleading because it calls up the image of concentration on one point on which the mind is directed. However, samadhi is neither a straining concentration on one point, nor is it the mind directed from here, from subject to object, from here to there, which could be a dualistic mode of experience. And then they go on and say how important the state of samadhi is as part of practice and waking up and absorption. And it's and what they're pointing at is this unity of consciousness and experience, of awareness and what it's experiencing. And it's something we all know about, but we may not recognize it, or we may not reflect on it in this way and it's um, and you could just for a second just reflect on when you're unified with what you're doing or what's happening and you're not thinking about it you're just you become it and sometimes that can happen for people when they're cooking or that can happen for people when they're dancing dance is actually beautiful you become the dance or when you're singing, or when you're, the arts are really beautiful places where people become one with their experience. And there's not a, even the thought of I'm doing something, the doing is just doing and becoming one with what it's doing and knowing it experientially. Here's a couple examples of this. Um, this is from a woman named Mildred Chase. Mildred Chase. 
and she's a piano player. She says, just being at the piano, egoless, just being at the piano, egoless, is to reach the place where the only thing that exists is the sound and the moving toward the sound. The music on the page that was outside of you is now within you and moves through you and you are a channel for the music and play from the center of your being. Everything that you have consciously learned, all of your knowledge emanates from within you. Nice word, emanates. It's not that you're thinking it. It emanates from within you. There is a sense of oneness in which the heart of the musician and the heart of the composer meet, in which there is no room for self-conscious thought. You are one with yourself and the act and feel as if playing has already happened and you are effortlessly releasing it. The music is in your hands, in the air, the room. The music is everywhere and the whole universe is contained in the experience of playing. That's beautiful, beautiful understanding of Samadhi from Mildred Chase. And I don't actually think she was a Buddhist, but she played some good music, I'm sure. And so the impact of samadhi is it unifies, clarifies, it also brightens the awareness, the consciousness. The, everything gets clear, crisp, known directly, not known through thinking about it, known through experiencing it. We don't know the breath because we're thinking on breathing. We know the breath by becoming the breath, by letting our consciousness saturate the, the, the living experience of breath. And, you know, we've been supporting very much this kind of receptive practice of allowing things or opening to things or melting and letting things show themselves in that way. But I also want to say something about the doing uh, quality of practice because it's an important part of practice because you're all, we're all going to, there are times when what's needed is action and doing it. And, um, at least for me, and especially when I was young, and I was really interested in samadhi and did a lot of samadhi practice, um, I felt excited about it, devoted about it, but also uh, I was going to do it, right? There, there was a certain intention that mostly we would call will uh, these days, that I was going to do it, and I gave myself to that. It's a little bit of warrior kind of energy. And there is, I couldn't find the quote today, but there's a beautiful quote about that. Uh, it was a Chinese uh, Shan master who said, he said, when the mind itself is um, composed and calm, then, then 
give yourself to practice completely as if your head is on fire, right? So I like that kind of practice, you know, especially when I was younger. I'm, I'm more relaxed now in that way. But, but, it, but it also, it has its place in meditation for all of us. It really has its place because there's times that's what's needed. Like, I'm going to do this. And really the first, um, now I'm remembering, the first time I really went into a samadhi was on my first 10-day meditation retreat and, and I was suffering a lot. <laughs> I want to attest to that. I was suffering. My legs were killing me. I couldn't sit still. I was restless. I kept moving. And, and they kept saying, oh, just stay still for one sitting. And they were saying this to the whole room. It was a big room, about at least 150 people down in Yucca Valley in the old days. And, uh, and uh, it was Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. And, and they kept saying, you know, it really, here's how you practice. You stay still. And I couldn't stay still. I was like, are you kidding? And I watched people look like Gina just looked, you know, like, oh, they're calming down. They, you see them, they look, you know, you, you, some of you look like that too, like really good. I'm like, wow, they look good. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, but I'm looking around, I'm watching these people settle on the retreats going on of day three, day four, day five. I'm not, I'm not settling now. Finally, I remember I actually prayed <laughs> that after when I went to sleep that night, you know, please show me how to do this goddamn practice. <laughs> and, and, and the next morning I got up and I just vowed I was not, I was going to sit still. And my knee was killing me as I sat still. And I can't remember if it was 45 minutes or an hour, the first sitting early in the morning, but but I just was going to sit still and I'm, and I'm being aware of the pain and the ring the bell, ring the bell, my mind is saying, and it's like, and, and I hate this and I'm never going to do it again, watching my mind do it, but I, and the pain and da 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 And finally they rang the bell. And, and what happened was, I don't even know exactly what happened, but the pain went away without me moving. And I went away, and I couldn't stop being mindful. And that was partly because the samadhi kicked in or established itself because of my uh, devotion to sitting still. And it was like I couldn't stop being mindful. I mean, sitting, walking, and I was going so slow after that that finally, I, at some point, I... Joseph was my teacher and I came up to Joseph like like at three o'clock in the afternoon and I said I could barely talk. I was I was a little um, altered as they stay. It's probably better to say that and then just say stoned from the meditation, but but it was a little altered and and I said, Am I gonna be like this forever? <laughs> <laughs> really, because I it was it was so strong, and it was so, and I, I wasn't doing it, and he he 
checked me out for a second, asked me a couple questions to make sure I was okay. And then he said, no, you don't have to worry about it, but I'd like you to do the three-month course, right, which is really Joseph-like, right? That's it. He's having a, a good sitting. Okay, get him on the three-month course. So, but, and, but it taught me something about the potential of consciousness and what could happen and what I didn't know and I have a tremendous faith in how much I still don't know. And there's more to learn. And it's one of the beautiful parts of practice and of being alive. There's so much more to discover or learn or wake up to. This is from, uh, this is from uh, Dantika. Uh, and it's from a book called The First Buddhist Women. And she said what was, uh, the name of the poem is What Was Wild Before. And she writes, As I left my daytime resting place on Vulture Peak, I saw an elephant come up on the river bank after its bath. A man took a hook and said to the elephant, Give me your foot. The elephant stretched out its foot and the man mounted. Seeing what was wild before, gone tame under human hands, I went to the forest and concentrated my mind. Right? So she's, in, she's inspired by what she sees as possible, and she knows she could do that, and she goes and does it. Right? And this kind of attention is what's needed at some point in our practice. This kind of being centered and establishing samadhi and concentrating, becoming one with our experience quite fully. This is from a teacher. I, I don't know if you sat with him or not. I can't remember. Sansanim? Did you? See? Yeah, that's what I thought. I only sat with him a little bit. He was a great guy. Did you imitate him a little here? You did already. No? Yeah. Somebody. Here's, here's when I met Sansanim, he had a big stick. Pardon? Oh, that was Kusan. But I met Sansanim. He was, he was similar tradition. Right, so he also had a big stick, and he would go. No, he would do it not like that. There we go, like that. Right, and you catch your attention immediately, and and uh, and he did this whole thing about a glass of water. What is this? What is this? If you say it's a glass, I'll hit you. If you say it's not a glass, I'll hit you. And then he... That was the teaching. <laughs> so I gave you my my version of Sun Sanim. But Sun Sanim writes, he said, he said, human beings, human beings understand too much. 
really beautiful. Human beings understand too much, but what they understand is just somebody's opinion. Like dog barking. American dogs say woof woof. Korean dogs say mung mung. <laughs> Polish dogs say how how. So which dog barking is correct? This is human beings barking, not dog barking. <laughs> if, if dog and you become 100% one, then you know the sound of dog barking. This is Zen teaching. Become one. Right. Beautiful, beautiful understanding. He was a beautiful man, really. And then I'll read you a little bit more. This is from another woman, Buddhist teacher, about what it was like for her before she was a Buddhist teacher. She was a pianist, right? Like Margaret Chase. And only her name, who many of you may know, is Joko Beck. And she writes this. She said, many years ago, I was a piano major at Oberlin Conservatory. I have some good stories about Oberlin, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Pam knows. <laughs> Anyhow, I was a piano major at Oberlin Conservatory. I was a very good student, not outstanding, but very good. And I very much wanted to study with one teacher who was undoubtedly the best. He'd take ordinary students and turn them into fabulous pianists. Finally, I got my chance to study with the teacher. When I went in for my lesson, I found he taught with two pianos. He didn't even say hello. He just sat down at the piano, played five notes, and then said, you do it. And I was supposed to play it just the way he played it. I was supposed to play it just the way he played it. I played it, and he said, no. He said, play it again. Or he played it again, and I played it again. Again, he said, no. Well, we had an hour of that. Each time, he said, no. In the next three months, I played about three measures, perhaps a half minute of music. Now, I had thought I was pretty good. I'd played soloists with little symphony orchestras, yet, in these, yet we did this for three months, and I cried most of the three months. Right? He had all the determination to make the student see. That's why he was so good. And at the end of three months, one day, he said, Good. What had happened? Great question, she's asked. Finally, I had learned to listen. Right? Now, she's already a good pianist. And he taught her a whole nother level of what's possible for listening. And as he said, he's, as he said, if you can hear it, you can play it. 
what had happened in those three months. I had the same set of ears I started with. Nothing had happened to my ears. What I was playing was not technically difficult. What had happened that I had learned to listen for the first time, and I'd been playing the piano for many years. I learned to pay attention. And that's key to samadhi, is paying attention fully to our experience, to what's here. And it's interesting, I was a musician for many years and I, at some point I studied the shakuhachi, Japanese bamboo flute with a Japanese Zen master, not Zen master, Japanese shakuhachi master. And I would go to his house and he was such a beautiful man who always, we would have tea to start. That's how you started the lesson. You would sit and have tea. He, he actually was a Zen master, although he didn't, never would say anything like that. And we would have tea and drink tea. And then at some point he would pick up his shakuhachi and play. And I was expected to play what he played. And, uh, and it was the same style. And it's such a beautiful way to learn from another human being because you're learning experientially not conceptually. Hmm. And it develop it 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 brings you into the direct experience of what one is attempting to do. Cause I could pretty quickly play the notes he was playing. But then you want to get the sound he was playing. And that took a while. <clears throat> so I hope this talk tonight is an encouragement that there's more to learn, more to discover, more we can find out. Because as, uh, I'm trying to remember the man's name, it was Joseph Goldstein's first teacher. Manindraji would say, the whole Dharma is sitting right here. The whole Dharma is sitting in your seat. This is where the, all, all the, it's all sitting right here. And so the encouragement with this kind of samadhi is to get closer to what's living right in your seat, right here. This is it. Not, not our ideas or beliefs or judgments, but really what's sitting right here and the goodness of what's here because that's already recognized in Buddhism. It's the understanding of what it means to have what's called the precious human birth that we happen to have that has all the pluses and minuses of being human, but is still precious that we're here. And that consciousness comes alive in this form that's called the human realm of existence. That is a realm we share with all humans. So the last piece I'll read. 
is from Suzuki Roshi, who was Pam's teacher's teacher. And uh, Suzuki Roshi is, you know, I never studied with him formally, but he's one of my teachers also. And he's the real thing. And I have my opinions about different people. And when I really like them, I think they're the real, this one's the real thing. And Suzuki Roshi was the real thing. He said, when we practice, our mind always follows our breathing. When we inhale, the air comes into the inner world. And when we exhale, the air goes out to the outer world. The inner world is limitless. The inner world is limitless. And, he says, the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world, but actually there is just one whole world. In this limitless world, the air comes in and goes out, goes in and comes out in this limitless world. And then he teaches, he says, he says, the air comes in and out like someone passing through a swinging door. If you think I breathe, the I is extra. There is no you to say I. What we call I is just a swinging door which moves when we inhale and when we exhale. It just moves, that is all. When your mind is pure and calm, following the tranquility we've been practicing, right? Enough to follow this movement. There is no thing. There is nothing or no thing. No I, no world, no mind, no body, just a swinging door. So when we practice, all that exists is the movement of the breathing. But we are aware of this movement. But to be aware of the movement does not mean to be aware of your small sense of self, but rather of your universal nature or Buddha nature. To be aware of the movement does not be, mean to be aware of, the, of your small sense of self, but rather of your universal nature, your Buddha nature. Just becoming one, being the swinging door that reality is breathing into and out of. Let's sit for a minute, please.
May our practice this evening, today, this week, be for the benefit of all. May it be for the benefit of all beings in this world and every world. May all beings be free and realize their true nature, their Buddha nature. Thank you for your kind attention. We have uh, a period of walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.